Okay, we're going to uh, take a talk about education, and we've got uh, three big-time uh, experts. Let me introduce them to you. John Hood is a longtime uh, syndicated columnist in North Carolina and nationally as well, and he's been writing about education for a very long time. Brenda Berg is the CEO of Best NC. That is a business group. Uh, dedicated to education. Did I get that right? Because I always say NC Best or Best Buy or something like that. I just want to make I got that correct. You got it right. It's Best NC. And J.B. Buxton is uh, a member of the North Carolina uh, State uh, School Board. He is also uh, the founder of his own education consulting group. And at one point in time, he was also a deputy state superintendent at the Department of Public Instruction. Guys, thank you very much for being here. And folks, this is why I'm doing this show. We had some scores come out a couple of weeks ago, and well, I'll just give you what uh, prompted it. This is the PISA scores. These are, are results that uh, you know uh, students all across uh, the world take in the developing world. And uh, you'll hear stories. You know, the U.S. ranks this and ranks that. Well, okay, fine. But listen to this: in the United States, back in 2000, U.S. students out of a scale of 600, scored 504. That was in 2000. 2018, 505. In mathematics, 483. 2018, 478. And in 2006 in science, 489. Good news here, in 2018, it's up to 502. Now, in North Carolina, there's been some progress, but I'll let you be the judge. Fourth grade reading back in 1998. These are in the NAEP scores. These are these are national scores. So the kid in Arizona, kid in uh, North Carolina, same test. Okay, uh, out of a scale of 500 in 1998, uh, fourth grade uh, kids in North Carolina scored 213. In the year 2018, I think I got that right. Uh, 221. And fourth grade mathematics 230. Uh, you know, that's in uh, 2000, in 2019, 241, eighth grade reading, 262, uh, back in 1998, in, uh, in 2019, it's uh, 263, and in mathematics, uh, 276 for eighth graders in math, and uh, that's in 2000, and in 2019, 284, so some, but not a whole lot. So uh, now on top of that, shall we address the elephant in the room, which is the big Leandro case uh, yeah, that came sure. out? Okay, who wants to? All right, John, um, it, first of all, explain the Leandro case in, oh, good. in 20 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Thanks for pitching that to John. There was, there was a, a set of plaintiffs that sued the state uh, two and a half decades ago, basically. In the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, to the, arguing that the the, the student for, uh, funding formula that North Carolina had in place at the time provided inequitable funding. Uh, Leandro himself was from Hoke County. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a number of other counties represented. The The larger urban areas then motion, uh, uh, asked to intervene, arguing that we are also inadequately funded. Uh, shockingly, all school districts say always that they're inadequately funded. That doesn't mean they're not. It's just you just don't find the alternative. And there's been a series of decisions. There was a Supreme Court decision, which is colloquially known as Leandro One, and another one known as Leandro Two. Um, 
it is often described that in North Carolina, the Constitution says that students have the right to an opportunity for a sound basic education. It's not in the Constitution, but the Supreme Court had, had concluded that it was something like that was implied by the way the Constitution set up public schools and made sure they were uh, accessible. And so something like a sound basic education has become the touchstone of the Leandro case. Uh, I have always argued the plaintiffs have lost, at least until now, because there's never been a court order that said, here's some money. And that's really what Leandro was just part of a national series of lawsuits that were happening in the 70s, 80s and 90s, where various plaintiffs would argue that the Constitution or state law mandated additional funding. Sometimes the plaintiffs won money. Sometimes they didn't. In North Carolina, what we ended up with was years of oversight, judicial oversight. And arguably, the early childhood program uh, was at least in part justified as compliance with Leandro. But what's happening now is a uh, a report by a consulting firm uh, that is informing a conversation between the judge who currently has the case at trial court level and uh, interested parties. And I'll let others explain more about that. Yeah, Brenda, you've actually, I'm sorry, JB, do you want to add to anything that uh, John said? Well, I think the things that to me, that's most interesting about the case, and these school finance cases have looked different from state to state, but that in our state, it started out exactly as John said, and when the Supreme Court came back, they said, well, here's how we would define a sound basic education, and then said, but we want to give a trial court the opportunity, that was Howdy Manning, to define if, in fact, the state is, is affording the opportunity for that, and he came back and basically said, Well, what's required is a good teacher in every classroom, a good principal in every school, and the resources to do the job. But as John said, never delivered an order with a specific amount of resources or any specific steps with the exception of taking over Hope County. And also the the preschool intervention, how they did find. He did, but then in Leandro, too, the Supreme Court said, well, that's not going to be a a right under the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so you talked about uh, the current judge who who has this case uh, hired a consulting firm. Brenda, you you actually have gone through uh, some of that uh, report. Uh, Anything there that, uh, of course, the headline was $8 billion uh, is now needed and so forth. You've actually have read uh, pretty much most of that report, which is lengthy. What's your takeaways? Well, um, my my printer's recovering. It's a 300-page <laughs> report, uh, and I, I've, I have had the chance to just look through it briefly. This came out yesterday. Hot off the presses. This couldn't be time better. Um, there are seven major elements of that, uh, finance and resource allocation, a qualified and well-prepared teacher in every classroom, as J.B. just said, and well-prepared principal in every school, early childhood education, high-poverty schools, state assessments and accountability, and regional and statewide supports for school improvement, which is another way of saying the kitchen sink. Um, so we, we've, uh, it is a very comprehensive plan. Um, some will look at the elements of it. For example, we're um, mildly obsessed with the educator pipeline and great educators and great principals. That's where we spend our focus, and we're happy to see the things that we've been working on are prominent in the report. Others will focus on the dollar amount, which, as you said, if you aggregate over eight years is about $8 billion, maybe, I guess, more, depending on the calculation. It looks like it's about $560 million annualized for recurring money. Um, and that's where the, the kind of the rubber is going to hit the road is going to be that combination of conversation about how much money we can put in, which 500 and something million dollars is a big number, but it's not unprecedented for a given year in increased funding. The how 
should be the the focus of the conversation, in, in my opinion. I open that up to you, gentlemen. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about this because this report has now been released. We're waiting for the judge to come out with some sort of a ruling, and it could go many different ways. Perhaps the judge would adopt some of those recommendations, perhaps not. Uh, but we want to talk about how that report can maybe inform some of these uh, statistics that Rick was talking about when we began uh, this discussion, and that is essentially stagnation for kids here in our state when it comes to student achievement. So what do we have to do? Or are we going to sit around and wait for another decade to go by or more and then have the same conversation again? That's why we're talking about this today with Brenda Berg from Best in C, John Hood, who, of course, is a syndicated columnist and analyst of many years here in our state, and J.B. Buxton as well, a member of the State Board of Education. We'll be back talk a lot more about this. We are talking with uh, three of the most respected uh, education policy analysts here in North Carolina because we have a big time problem in this state, essentially. Uh, Despite all sorts of efforts, despite all sorts of money and changes and reforms, if you look at student achievement um, over the past 15 to 20 years, what you're going to find is that in general, there's a little bit of progress here and there, but a lot of stagnation. So what do we do? Nobody wants that. Despite what you may believe and you may have a, a different policies that you are um, supporting, something we're doing isn't working. So what do we do? We're here with Brenda Berg from Best NC, John Hood, who is a well-known syndicated columnist and analyst, and J.B. Buxton. He is a member of the State Board of Education, has been working in the education field for many, many years. So, John, we mentioned that we have this new report from this independent mm-hmm. consultant. Uh, as I read the headlines about it, it talks about changes to certain things. We need to focus more on certain things. It says we need to spend a lot more money. That doesn't sound like anything that I haven't heard before. Well, it, it isn't really anything you haven't heard before. And in fact, that would be the opposite of what what they're trying to argue is that there is now a wide and deep body of knowledge, of, of empirical data, suggesting that North Carolina should do X, Y, and Z. If it was brand new, it would not meet the test of empirically supported. So they're making an argument that's quite different, that this sort of, this is the consensus position. I, I'm not sure they're right about, I, I know they're not right about that on some things, but they might not be right about that on a variety of things. I want to give you an example. We talked earlier about the stagnation uh, in North Carolina and elsewhere, test scores in the last 15 years or so. Uh, but before that, North Carolina was one of the, had one of the largest gains in educational achievement in, in the nation from the early 90s through the early 2000s. What happened? Well, the point I'm making is people really don't still know what happened. I mean, the report, for example, suggests that there was all these policies that were enacted during, they specifically cite the Hunt administration. Uh, again, a first-year public policy student would look at that and say, when well, Hunt was reelected to his third term in 92, uh, a lot of his policies didn't get going until 97. Uh, the, the trend actually began in the early 90s. It doesn't quite match. And in fact, once the students and teachers affected by some of those mid-90s policies were put into place, once you get several years in, into the future where those would have start to matter, 
that's when the test scores started to level off. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not arguing that, that there are valuable things that happened during the hunt years. There were some. In fact, particularly, I think, during the first two terms, not 77 to 85. I'm just saying there's a lot of, even in this report, which is hundreds of pages, and there are many hundreds of pages more of technical details, I'm afraid there's a little bit of mythologizing and even a little bit of politics in here that was unnecessary. Politics and education? I, I, it, there are some genuine mysteries. This, this it is absolutely the case, though, that North Carolina had a very large gain for a variety of possible reasons until the early 2000s, then not much else as far as actual gain. And remember that the state test scores we can't really use effectively because they've been changed over time. The NAEP scores... Uh, it's important not to get carried away with a one or two point difference. That's not statistically significant for the most part. So the best thing to say is North Carolina is statistically indistinguishable from the nation in virtually all categories of fun, of, of uh, testing. That has been true now for a number of years. But if you adjust for the student background, poverty status, race, ethnicity, things like that, North Carolina is one of the top performers in the country, third in math, 11th in reading. But that is not new either. So the point is, there's a lot of things about this that the context of this that people are jumping to conclusions I wish they wouldn't. That doesn't mean the report doesn't have a lot of interesting things in it. It certainly does. JB? Let, let me go back to a different governor, which I think tells helps us unearth this story of improvement that we saw basically in 2000, 2001, yeah. 2002. If you go back to Jim Martin's tenure when Senate Bill 1 passed right. and when we first started doing annual tests and reading and math – what you began to see was a focus. I mean, like any good business focusing on what's the goal, how are we going to get there, how are we going to marshal resources, you began back essentially in 91, 92, seeing statewide testing, reading and math at that yes. time without any stakes. Yes. You get to 95, 96, you get Republican House, Democratic Senate, Jim Hunt, and you get a different, the ABCs, and now you've got some stakes attached, some bonuses. What you saw, I think, was a real focus on how we were going to elevate all kids in reading and math, no mystery about who's doing well and who wasn't, no mystery about which schools were falling behind. And you began to see supports for teachers and principals to get them better at the job of basically improving reading and math and then about 10 and of course subjects. You fast forward up to 2001, 2002, you see big gains. You also had a state that said, we're going to make sure our standards and curriculum align with NAEP. So there was a real clear focus. When you get past that, and I came in the administration that was past that, we kind of had hit all the kids that we could get there. Now it yeah. was, how are we going to get the rest of the kids? And now who take probably a differential approach to moving, that's when we've seen, I think, a real flat line, and we haven't really changed it's except for the high possible, schools. I, I know you want to move. It's also possible that you get the early gain because students are simply get used to taking these kinds of tests, but that's not the kind of gain that can be that you can't build on that kind of gain. If I can lean in on the governor name game, um, <laughs> <laughs> Governor Holzhauser in 1977 instituted the first universal all-day kindergarten, and that. I, I agree with the accountability measures, but you combine the two, you have kids who are coming into kindergarten 1977, they're graduating from high school at the end of the 1980s. 
So as we're heading into the 90s, we have kids who had the benefit of universal all-day kindergarten, by the way, the first state in the nation to have that. So I, I do believe that mm-hmm. when you see these big lifts, something happened, at, but, and we have to be careful about causal relations, but that's a big one. I think accountability is also a big one. I'll never forget the time I went to a press conference for the governor, who I won't name, but you can figure it out, in 1998, <laughs> and NAEP scores came out, and the governor was extolling the benefits of his Smart Start program. <laughs> And it was it was quite literally impossible for the children who went through Smart Start who have taken these tests yet. I mean, perhaps they were tutoring their older siblings who then were doing well on the NAEP scores. And I'm not picking on all politicians want to claim credit when things go well and blame when things don't go well. But as Brenda's getting at, education effects have long late lag times and and recruiting teachers and training. Surely that doesn't have an effect the next year. It takes years for that to show up. So speaking of years, so what do we do next to try to address this and start seeing some increases, some gains again in student achievement? We're going to talk more about that when we return. We're talking with J.B. Buxton, many, many years in the education field in this state, John Hood, analyst and syndicated columnist, and Brenda Berg from Best NC. We're speaking about uh, education and the uh, fact that uh, student achievement, whether in North Carolina or the United States, really hasn't gone much of anywhere uh, for almost uh, 20 years. We've got uh, three experts. J.B. Buxton is on the uh, Board of Education for the state of North Carolina. Brenda Berg is the head of Best NC. That's a group of uh, business uh, folks that uh, have uh, formed in order to improve uh, education in the state. And John Hood, syndicated uh, state columnist and also national columnist as well, who's written for many years on education. Guy knows his stuff. All right, let's talk about teaching because everybody says we've got to have great teachers and all that sort of stuff. Let me ask you a series of questions. One, are the education schools doing their job? Um, you know, if you go to UNC, wherever, schools of education is doing their job or do they need to adjust? Uh, number two, are we actually recruiting and trying to get the best people to go into uh, teaching like we would a running back, uh, you know, f- uh, for a football team. And uh, number three, why is it, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the best paying jobs in education aren't in the classroom? And if, you, and if you're somebody who wants to raise a family on a teach, you know, being in education, you got to get out of the classroom because the money is not in the classroom. And finally, are we now seeing uh, teachers who are beginning to see uh, education as a platform for social justice? All right, anybody? Jump on in. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of questions there. Uh, well, I would point folks to uh, ncedfacts.org. We have a lot of data there where you can see, on, for example, schools of education, um, the students in the schools of education, how they're doing relative to the general student body. Um, you can also find that the UNC system the in, or the in state schools tend to produce better teachers than, say, lateral entry or out of state, although the very small percentage of teachers that are TFA teachers are outperforming everyone. What's TFA? Uh, Teach for America. Okay. Thank you. It's a small, it's sort of imagine Peace Corps for teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, really high quality uh, candidates coming into the classroom typically for two years, but many stay longer. Um, so the the school of education question, I think, ha- I, I don't think the schools of education have evolved much. And, and the, the place where I'm interested in looking is they're not spending a lot of time thinking about what kinds of candidates they're taking in. Right now it's GPA, kind of your traditional post-high school entry into college. 
questions, and the research is pretty clear that your GPA is not well correlated with whether or not you'll be a great teacher. And our schools of education um, and, our, frankly, our system is not looking at aptitude, right? Can you make eye contact? Can you multitask? Can you uh, shift uh, from one set of students to another? These are, these are aptitude issues that uh, if we're really going to evolve the profession, the high-skilled profession that it is, we should be looking at some of the criteria that other high-skilled professions are using, uh, personality profiles, uh, competency, you know, looking in other directions other than just GPA. I think we're you, excluding well, a lot. You know, of that candidates. all sounds important, but I'm wondering, too, about content. If I'm a parent, mm-hmm. what I want to know is that when my child is sitting in a math class, that the person who is instructing that class knows a heck of a lot about math. And are we measuring up when it comes to our teachers so in terms I of wanna, content? I want to go to this. It's a great point. I want to two things. One, just back to what Brenda said. I mean, you start off with baseball and the, the drag on the baseball. So let me use the metaphor. It's a lot about at-bats in this game. I mean, teaching is about enough about repetition and at-bats and understanding how to reach kids in a classroom. It's a tough job when you first get in there. I can say from personal experience, you're swimming upstream and you learn as you go. We don't do enough for kids in coming into teacher education or adults coming back in to give them time in classroom learning. Some, some of the best places in the country right now doing residency work. Louisiana is doing it for all of their teacher education students where you basically have got to be a full year in a school as a resident teaching. Don't, don't think six weeks of teacher education. Think a full year. That's one. So there, we need to do a lot more of that. We need to do a lot more partnership with community colleges because – we can't get kids to go to UNC schools and then decide they don't care about coffee shops and movie theaters anymore and they're going to go to rural North Carolina. They've kind of been to a place that's got a quality of life. But we've got people who have made those communities their home and generally are going back to the community college to find a way to get into the economy. We've got to give them a pathway where they don't have to go to a four-year university where we can have the university come to them, stay on that community college. We will, we will add prospective teachers in those areas will also probably diversify the profession in those areas. But on this content piece, we have now made it so that you do not have to pass a content exam to enter the profession in, let's say, math or reading in the early grades. You can come in and pass that after three years. And the challenge I see is we can't stipulate that, in fact, our teachers know the content they need to teach kids in the subject they're in. We give them time to do it, but that right now is not keeping you from starting teaching in North Carolina. Yeah. So, John, what happens if, um, you know, if it's my child who's in the class during that three-year period where the the teacher (laughs) may not know math but is teaching math? What gives with that? Well, it's a challenge, and and it's important to disaggregate that problem by subject. Uh, Math and science in particular is probably a more important category for content knowledge than, for example, a teacher may be teaching history or reading but is not a specialist in or hasn't, doesn't have deep knowledge of history but could teach history based on the material that he or she has. I think math and science, particularly upper-level math and science, is a serious challenge. If you don't master the material, it's hard to teach it. But, of course, as many people, for example, in Wake County who are dealing with Wake County Public Schools right now know there's also changes in how math is being taught that a lot of parents are bucking up against um, – It isn't the way they learned it. They have trouble helping their students. Some of the teachers don't seem sometimes to know how to deliver the new content or the new pedagogy the way it's designed. So it isn't just do we have a good teacher or not, which, by the way, evaluating teachers and deciding who's good and who's bad and what to do about that is a controversial subject by itself. 
and then the content question, those are important, but also how how are we teaching? And there there's a lot of pushback against that uh, in some communities. I'm not arguing that they're necessarily right. Uh, there are some changes in the way we teach things that are positive. I'm not sure about Wake County's math curriculum specifically, actually, but I'm not arguing we should always be against change. But if parents are not brought along and they don't buy into this and they don't believe that it makes sense and that teachers know what they're doing, it's very difficult for the process to succeed. JB, how do we uh, change uh, uh, paying teachers? Uh, you know, uh, to me, as a taxpayer, I would have absolutely no problem if the highest individual, the highest paid individual on a campus was a teacher uh, who had the, you know, who could back it up with the, through the achievement of their students. I, you know, I always get a kick when I hear, uh, you know, teachers, you know, put on red shirts and say, we want to be t- treated by, uh, you know, as professionals, but they want to be paid like union members. You know, all of the incentives in education for money is outside the classroom. Is that ever going to change? Well, I think if you think about people coming to the profession, especially now, I've got one out of college and two in, and I think about that generation, they would expect to see some kind of career pathway. How am I going to grow in this profession? I don't want to do in 30 years what I do my first year out. And finding ways for teachers who want to get in that classroom, make a salary, teach second grade for 30 years, that's great. But if you want to grow in the profession and you want to be someone who coaches other teachers, you want to be someone who develops curriculum, you want to be someone who works to mentor young teachers, then we want to create pathways for you to advance in the profession and make more money and improve the practice of your fellow teachers. I think that's the best way we're going to do it. We do have some places where teachers make a little bit more money than an average principal in a district. It's very few. But I would say we do not want to undervalue the role of a principal in making teachers better. I mean, good teachers stay in schools with good principals, Mm -hmm. and good principals help grow the ability of good teachers, or of all teachers. I I want to create strong incentives for people who are strong instructional people to be principals and not just decide they're going to be working on buses and discipline and and making the school day run, but they can really be the lead teacher in the school. We've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, what do we do going forward to make sure that kids are learning and that effective teachers are being compensated and also that less effective teachers are not compensated as much? We're going to talk more with the experts in the field, John Hood, Brenda Berg, and J.B. Buxton. We're talking education with three big-time experts. Brenda Berg is with Best NC. That's a organization uh, formed by business folks to try and uh, improve education in North Carolina. Uh, John Hood is a syndicated uh, columnist in the state and a national columnist as well. And J.B. Buxton is a uh, education consultant. His one time was the deputy state superintendent of public instruction and is on the state board of education. All right. Um, Let's talk about something that's never talked about in uh, education very much anyways, and that's the role of parents. I got into trouble about two months ago when uh, back in the day uh, when I had black hair, I would pass out scholarships (laughs) from the electric cooperatives to teachers in the school. And so, you know, there's a lot of waiting around, you know, in the principal's office. And when I saw uh, bad kids, I saw even worse parents. And um, so do we need to educate parents saying, look, You've got a big responsibility. The reason why your kid's not achieving, probably because you're not doing your job as a parent. And here's a way that you can actually do that, and it's not easy. JB, you're in the, you're in the arena right now. What do you think? 
There's no question. I mean, I think it, this is a partnership ultimately between parents and schools. Schools obviously take on the responsibility of moving kids instructionally, and that's their job, and they shouldn't run from that. They've got to do whatever they do with the kids who walk in the door. But there's no question that from zero to five, the parent is not only a child's first teacher, but most important teacher and sets the culture for excellence and hard work that ought to then be capitalized on when a kid gets to school. And when a student is in school, the ability of a school to be able to count on a parent to help a kid stay focused on work, to be disciplined at a school, I mean, I, I think that's a critical role. And so I, I agree with you, we cannot lose the importance of the role of parents as partners with schools in making this. Brenda, are, are educators uh, you know, as bold as JB here as far as saying, you know what, I can only you know, work with what I have, and, right. and you have to produce a kid that you know shuts up, pays attention, and does their homework. Yeah, uh, parent involvement in education has been sort of a topic for 20 years. Um, it is definitely uh, critically important. It's the single most important factor long before the teacher or the principal have an impact on the student achievement. And it's hard to policy, right? It's hard to get into a home and determine how a parent is going to parent. There are some programs that really start at birth, like Nurse Family Partnership, where you have a nurse coming into a home and working with the parent and talking about that feedback between a parent and a child and reading to your child. And then you start talking about what you're talking about, the principal's office in middle school, which, you know, God bless anybody who works in a middle school. Um, but how do you work with those parents? That's really difficult. So what we're seeing in schools is love the children who come through the door as they come through the door. And we're finding, I see in the Leandro study, I know um, in the, some of our best performing districts, they have communities in schools or community school efforts where they're really um, reaching out to the parents. I like to shout out Burton Elementary School in Durham that's exceeded growth six years in a row. And they chose to have a bilingual parent engagement specialist. Um, and and they, they're really focusing on how do we bring the families into our school. But you have to be really intentional. It has to be at the school level um, and recognizing the specific unique needs of those parents and, and why they aren't coming to the school. It could be fear. It could be job. It could be hunger. It could you know any number of issues. You have to really um, customize your parent outre- outreach to the needs of those parents. Parents want to do the best for their children. Sometimes they simply aren't in a position to, to know how to do it or to have the time to do it. You know, John, there are um, some people who believe that um, we have to look really, really closely at the um, what's called the socioeconomics mm. of, of kids. And basically, they're talking about poor kids. Um, and I can say that because I am a poor kid. Um, my parents were migrant workers, migrant farm workers. That's how we ended up in Arizona. They were um, picking citrus. They followed the crops. My father had an eighth grade education, uh, supported his family literally with his back worked until he was uh, in his late 70s. Um, and so sometimes I get a little bit upset with people who's, who somehow intimate that if a child is from a poor family, that they can't learn, and that the thing to do is to put them in a classroom with kids who are from families that are more well-off. I'd like you all to give me your sense of this issue of so- socioeconomics and what helps kids learn. Well, <clears throat> we can start out with a couple of facts that are just facts. You know, we, sh- we should accept facts if, if they're broadly understood, and this one I'm about to say is, as what they are, but not necessarily as a recommendation. There is a strong correlation 
between socioeconomic status of a student and how that student perform at the average student performs on a test. Very strong. Now that's not fate. It's not destiny. It's not an excuse. Um, if you don't do well in school and you came from a poor family and you end up going to an employer and saying, well, I know I don't know very much, but I'm poor, so hire me. The employer's going to say, I'm sorry you're poor, can't hire you, you don't know what you need to know. So it's not an excuse, but it is an explanation. And it's important, for example, not to draw false positives and false negatives. If we look at schools in fairly well-off communities and we see that their test scores are high, these could be public schools or private schools, you see their test scores are high, you can't conclude that's a great school because it might be that the parents are engaged, they, 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 there's all sorts of reasons why those students do well, they're not stressed, they're not hungry, they're, there's no crime happening next door, there's all sorts of other things that may explain that. And similarly, you may find a school, and Brenda mentioned uh, one school, but there are a number of schools that have high poverty, and they have, let's say, average scores. Well, that probably is a sign that something good is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to be very careful to... to take the socioeconomic status into consideration when you're analyzing data and trying to draw conclusions. But that is not the same thing as saying, well, these kids are poor, they'll never learn. These kids are black, they'll never learn. These kids are Hispanic, they'll never learn. That is belied by counterexamples, and our society cannot function based on that assumption. So we've got to make heroic efforts to overcome the effects of family background, but we also need to recognize that there is a limit to how much public schools can do when we have large percentages of our popula- of our children who are born out of wedlock, who grow up with single parents, who have unsafe neighborhoods, whose parents are addicted, or maybe the children are addicted. Uh, those are social problems that public schools cannot solve, and we shouldn't think they could solve them and try to expect them to solve them, because then they're not going to do their job well. When we come back, we're going to talk with um, our panelists about what they think is their, their biggest concern and what they would do. Uh, the first thing they would do if they could make a recommendation about how to go forward with um, educating kids in North Carolina. We're talking with Brenda Berg, John Hood, and J.B. Buxton. We're speaking uh, education with Brenda Berg of Best NC, John Hood, syndicated columnist, and J.B. Buxton, member of the State Board of Education. Before we went to the break, uh, John uh, Hood basically said that uh, poverty doesn't necessarily have to define a student's achievement, but you can't ignore it either. Uh, Brenda, JB, you want to uh, add yeah. on to that? Yeah, we, we looked at all of the um, high poverty schools in the state. And to John's point, there's a high correlation between being a high poverty school and having low college and career readiness. But even within each of those strands, if you look at a school that's 60 percent poverty, you see big outliers. It's not tightly correlated. It's actually loosely correlated. So there's a lot of there are clearly schools that are outliers, and, and when you look at them, they're doing some specific things. Right? They're looking at data a lot. Um, they're surrounding with systems of support. So we know that, that there are better ways to do things. We just don't know necessarily exactly what they are. We also know that if you are poor, the minute you walk through the school door, you're likely to be deprived of certain certain resources. Now, on a pure dollar perspective, North Carolina is more equitable than most other states. If you're a poor student, statistically, you get more dollars than uh, not poor student. But but when you look at the, the most important factor, which is the teacher, if you walk into a poor school or a, poor, a classroom with compromise with students who are low socioeconomic status, you are half as likely to have a highly effective teacher. You are dramatically less likely to have a national board certified teacher. 
And we look at, we talked about math teachers earlier, about a third of our students don't have a fully licensed math teacher, and that's heavily weighted toward students who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. So we're really doubling down on those, those challenges. Take those barriers away and students can really thrive. Set high expectations for students. So on top of all of this, sometimes there's the uh, sympathy factor or what has been coined the soft bigotry of low expectations. So, oh, you're poor. Oh, you come from a single parent family. Oh, you're black. Whatever that might be and an assumption of we're going to make your life easier for you by putting you into an easier course as opposed to challenging you. We know that students thrive on being challenged. And so setting high expectations for all students is something that I think we're going to have to get over as a, a hurdle um, in education. I want to come back, Donna, to what I thought was a, a, a great and provocative question about is essentially just surrounding kids who come in poor or let's say potentially less ready into school, especially kindergarten, all of a sudden magically going to make them do better in class. I don't think that is the issue so much that, and I just, in very kind of layman's terms, you put a kid, a class of 25 kids together and you create 25 kids who need a situation for a teacher or 25 kids who need a lot of supports to get up to where they need to be and where they need to go versus a class that's got a little bit greater mix of readiness. You've made a tough job of teaching that much tougher. And so I think that's where a lot of the thoughts about how you create more mixed schools in terms of, I don't think it's so much socioeconomics, although it plays out that way, but kind of levels of readiness of students and how you make sure you make the job of teaching one that I think allows them to differentiate and focus on students. There's pretty good data about when you get to about 40% or more in a school of kids who come from high poverty backgrounds, both high poverty kids and middle class kids do worse because teachers' ability to spread that that one-on-one attention across lots of kids just goes down. In our remaining moments here, I'd like to um, ask each of you, what would you do if you were able to just right now just say to um, policymakers who could change a policy, enact a new one, uh, get rid of a current one, what would you suggest that they do to make some sort of progress here to move this so that student achievement starts on um, a different trajectory, an upward trajectory? John? Well, if I had to quickly say, I would say differentiate pay in a variety of different ways by subject, by poverty status of school, by performance of teachers. I think that's important. I think more choice and competition is good in education as it is in basically every field of human endeavor. And I think that we need to be very careful not to adulterate, not to weaken our academic standards. One of the things the Leandro report the Westhead report for Leandro showed is that we've had a rising graduation rate, but we should be a little dubious about whether that really means that a higher percentage of North Carolina kids are truly getting what they need in high school. Brenda? I would put a, an extraordinary leader in every school. I'd put whatever resources we need to ensure that we have a great principal in every single school and that they have full access to their budget. Today, if you ask a principal what their budget is, they can't even tell you. You, put, you couple that with accountability and high expectations, high standards that we're all clear on, I think that, that everything will move. JB? My favorite statistic in education, Gates Foundation did a study years ago looking at teacher effectiveness about seven or eight percent of teachers are distinguishably better than their peers. You'd want to pay them as much money as you could. And about seven to eight percent are distinguishably worse. You'd want to counsel them out the door immediately. That leaves about 84, 85 percent of teachers who are good enough to be in the profession, but not great. 
And to me, that is the whole challenge of public education. It is a labor-heavy business. These are teachers teaching 25 and sometimes 30 kids. You have to make them as good as they possibly are. I would never disagree with principals. I'd never disagree with high standards. But I want a profession that every teacher we bring in is structured to make that teacher better. And that's where supports that starts with, Rick, you brought up teacher preparation, how we mentor these young teachers when they come in, how we pay them in ways that gives them pathways. To me, it's about structuring the profession around the most highest most and high leverage asset we have, which is the teacher. Well, it's been a great hour. We can't uh, thank you enough for coming to talk about all this. Brenda Berg with Best NC, John Hood, syndicated columnist, and J.B. Buxton. He is a member of the State Board of Education. Folks, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.